0: This is a CBC podcast.
1: The bellows and barks of sea lions seemingly content, sprawling on a raft about 100 meters away from me. In the early evening sun, they look like the sultans of the sea. I'm on a wharf at Porto Cove in Howe Sound, the southernmost fjord in North America. The sea lions may just be resting up from a successful day of hunting for fish, their bellies full. They hunt for food up and down the Sound, or at Katsum as it's called in the Squamish language. It's a spectacular setting, right next to the Sea to Sky Highway where snow-capped peaks scrape the sky and plunge down into the ocean below. There are others, people, also hunting for fish in the Sound, but for a very different reason. And just north of here, I'm heading out with them to learn about their efforts to protect the biodiversity here as climate change threatens their marine home. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch.
2: Only one little
1: bunch of eggs. Of eggs.
0: Huh. That's exciting. Where's your GPS well, you
1: have on? one. you know me, I'm like a i
3: like your worst shadow lady ever. I loved every day, and I'm like, that's why I just gotta call you, and send a picture yeah. and I'm done, right? Yeah.
1: Like. I'm just arriving at the dock in the town of Squamish when Tina glides up next to the boat I'm about to board. She's on a stand-up paddleboard, smiling, seemingly oblivious to the rain and the chill in the air. She's excited to report that she spotted herring spawn, or eggs, as she was out getting some morning exercise with her two clients. Like I said,
3: it's just one little clump. And it was nice. I got to show the ladies so they
1: were stoked. We're
2: just doing our fitness paddles this morning. you
0: got to educate people while you're out there.
2: Yeah, that's right.
4: Interpretation.
5: Yeah,
1: (laughs) It's actually a good omen for the day ahead because herring and their eggs are exactly what we're on the lookout for as we head out in a vessel that looks kind of like a Zodiac except bigger and sturdier. Okay, have a good paddle. (laughs) See you later. Tina's part of a squad of citizen scientists reporting sightings of herring roe to Matthew Van Ustem, one of the people on board here with me. He used to be a commercial fisherman, but now he pretty much only fishes for information on the herring. Van Ustam is part of the survey team that's sending data into the region's Marine Stewardship Initiative. It's part of a larger effort afoot to understand and restore the ecosystem under the waves. As we steer out onto the harbour, he talks about how far they've come in four years of doing this.
0: In the first year that we started this, we essentially would like go out in the boat, survey out in the boat, come back once like the sunset or when we were too cold, change, drink coffee, and then go wander around in the estuary. In the dark. Surprise. In the dark. Because <laughs> the low tides in January and February would often end up at like the middle of the night or something, but... It would allow us to get out and monitor, and that first year was a really good learning curve for all of us of like what, of what we, <laughs> yeah,
6: yeah what we could and do
0: and how much work goes into it. But now we have 30 volunteers about that monitor almost every bit of shoreline in the estuary, as well as the blind channel. So people like Tina, who are a paddleboard guide and out with people all the time, also do work to monitor where the herring are spawning and record data. And Send it in if they see it.
1: Now they've got better gear, a better idea of what to look for and how to do it. The surveys start in the dead of winter and last through early spring. Some done by boat, others by swimming the shoreline or checking in estuaries.
4: Okay, I'm Courtney Smaha, the project director for the Akatsum How Sound Marine Stewardship Initiative.
1: Smaha's on today's trip too, smiling despite the rain. All the information being gathered will help her and the initiative do their work. When there's herring, there's hope.
4: And that's because during Temlaut, or time of the herring, um, it's a signifier of spring and it brings nutrients to this area. And with that, it brings other marine mammals like the yot-yos, the orcas. Um, And that's overall an indicator or a key indicator of ecological
1: health. Do you have a sense of how ecologically healthy, from the work you've done already, how healthy the waters are now?
4: It's really hard to tell because I think um, there's not a lot of funding for the ocean environment itself globally. And so we don't really have a great baseline of what... The ecosystem is looking like in our ocean environments and so a lot of this work is more exploratory and collecting baseline data to get a better understanding of our ocean ecosystem so that we can make better informed decisions when it comes to a lot of the work activities that we conduct in these waters <laughs>
1: So the best way to get information, in this case, photos and video, is to actually get out of the boat and into the water. Van Ustem is spraying lubricant into a wetsuit because we've just spotted a group of hungry sea lions in a feeding frenzy, feeding on herring. <laughs> oh, look coming to boat. Oh, they made a circle. Oh. <laughs> the seawater looks like it's boiling as the herring skim the surface, seemingly looking to escape. Seagulls swoop down looking for an easy snack. Van Ustam has learned to go where the birds flock together.
0: Take photos and videos of everything. Even if you don't think it's important now, one day it will be. And look for the birds. And I think those have been two things that we have always followed and has always helped kind of guide our awareness of this place.
1: Van Ustam's got the cadence of a school teacher. So it's no surprise to learn he actually is one when he isn't doing this work in the evenings and on weekends. And he's found a way to ensure the youngest members of his classes will pay attention to what he's telling them about what's going on out here. He created one character, then another.
0: My students spend all day listening to me yap and blabber about stuff and tell them everything's important. (laughs) And so I had to find a different way to communicate what was happening with herring and what we were seeing on the sound and uh, that's kind of where Harriet the Herring came into this story and every year since then she writes the kids letters and tells them about the things that we see out on the sound and all of her letters are based on the things that we're actually seeing out on the water. So one day we go out surveying and we run into Lingcod Egg mass, and all of a sudden Liam the Lingcod... Harriet the herring are having a conversation, and uh, the kids are not only learning about the role herring play, but also that there are link in the waters right near their home.
1: There's so much to learn about out here, and I'm about to get a lesson of my own.
0: It looks like they had lost the bait ball or that bait ball. What <laughs> are
1: you calling it? A big ball? A bait ba- ball? Bait ball. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to stop here for a second. Bait ball. I have never heard of that. I thought it was something to buy at the tackle shop to attract fish. But no, I learned this is what it is. It's the shape the herring form themselves into as a way to try to survive a sea lion attack a whirling, swirling ball of fish. A bait ball. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Let's go back to the water. And the young man who dove in to see what was going on.
6: Oh, I'm not used to that. <laughs> They're just swimming under me. No, the seals? They scared me. <laughs> I'm not used to that.
1: Oh. That's Johnny. He's part of the team out on the water today. He donned the wetsuit, then got a little too close for comfort. It's something new for him, even though he's been doing this kind of work for a long time.
6: Hot squall. Johnny, Queen, Snaw. Um, Hello, my name is Jonathan Williams. I come from the Equapsam Reservation, which is in Squamish. I'm a Squamish person, and I am respectful in my heart. I am grateful for you being here today and taking the time to come out in this uh, rainy day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, I just want you to tell me what it was like for you to see that that school of fish there. You sounded really excited.
6: <laughs> it was pretty awesome. There's not every day that we go swimming that we'll get to see fish. Most days we don't see anything. That's kind of the. That's kind of the point. We're trying to figure out when stuff's there and when stuff isn't there. So it's uh, was a great opportunity to be able to see a school of fish. Kind of scary though because I, all the seals were coming after them but <laughs> it was, still, it was still a really cool opportunity to see all those fish. They were only like, I don't know, 5-10 feet in front of me. Well, hard to say with the goggles on but that's what it felt like.
1: Why is it important for you to be part of this?
6: Uh, personally, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a Sculptwish person so we, have been, we say we've been here since time immemorial. We have a reserve which actually is across from here that has science that backs it up that is, it's a 10,000 year old site. So it's one of our oldest reserves. We've been here for at least that long. Um, we've, we say we've definitely been here longer, but that's how far science has been, how long science has we've been here. And, and since then, since we've uh, for, since we've been here, we have been stewards of the land. We have lived with the land, taken care of the land, and been one with the land.
1: That's another critical aspect of this work, restoring his people's relationship to the water and what lies within it. As part of that elders wanted to bring back a traditional way of harvesting herring roe, suspending branches of hemlock in the water. Van Ustam was part of that effort.
0: And within like four days of putting the boughs in the water, herring had come in and spawned the whole shoreline and coated these boughs thicker than like, we couldn't even lift these boughs out of the water. They were so covered. And that's really where like, at least my connection to herring and my understanding of the role they play started. Like I had never truly understood the like abundance and nutrients that come with those fish until like trying to lift one of those boughs out of the water and it being too heavy because there were so many eggs on it.
1: Increasingly the people of the Squamish nation have reconnected to their past practices and Courtney Smaha says there's been success on another front.
4: A second part to the significance of conducting herring surveys is to also get people out into the water and establish those connections because people won't protect what they don't know and so getting out into the waters and experiencing the thrush of activity that come with herring is part and parcel to why this work is so important just to develop those relationships with the waters and the ecosystem that we have here.
1: Are you finding that's having an impact? That that community knowledge is, is having an impact?
4: I like to think so, absolutely. Um, With the Herring Project, just in my short time here as Project Director, we have seen a tremendous growth in support for the Herring Surveys, a lot of um, community participation. When we had our community engagement session to recruit volunteers this year, um, over 50 people showed up, and that is way more than we had last year. And so I think there's this Um, growth of understanding of herring and its importance in our region and with that it brings enthusiasm from the community members to be a part of this initiative and go out and experience and see herring and chemish and um, yeah forage fish more broadly to gain that connection and sense of
1: place. The herring appear to be making a comeback as the waters recover from years of contamination by pulp mills and other industry onshore. Mills have closed and the waters are healthier But there are still challenges. The ocean is acidifying and warming due to climate change. That's why the crew who's out here today and others along with them argue the work is so important. The knowledge about spawning sites will help them and others to fight to protect the habitat from future activity, such as a planned liquid natural gas plant. For now, though, there are the simple wonders of seeing nature up close.
6: Holy...
4: That's a lot of fish!
1: And as long as there's lots of fish, the sea lions will keep coming back. And as they return in larger numbers, orcas have followed. Biodiversity creeping back. And with it, the hope these creatures will survive. Alberta remains under a state of emergency as crews work to control wildfires. In recent days, tens of thousands of people have been forced from their homes. It only emphasizes the importance of a workshop underway in Banff National Park. There, dozens of people involved in fighting wildfires are meeting up. Push,
2: push, push. Boom. And if you give it a sharp tug, and if it doesn't come off, yeah, good to
7: go. Uh, and then, yeah, just like pretty much all the forestry fittings give it a quick prime.
1: Okay, you might've heard some laughing there because this is a workshop after all. Women in Fire Training Exchange is all about getting together and empowering underrepresented groups in this high-risk line of work.
3: Okay, my name is Rodri Wiseman and my pronouns are they, them. So I'm a transgender fire practitioner who grew up in Treaty 7 in Calgary, but now live south of the border in so-called Olympia, Washington, an occupied Nisqually territory and there, I work for a nonprofit called Eco Studies Institute. I'm our fire partnerships and training specialist. I definitely didn't have any, anyone in like any crew leaders or anything who were uh, women or, or folks of any other gender, um, for my entire time working in Can- Canadian fire agencies. And I think it's been really exciting to see that more, and that has encouraged me to like pursue more leadership roles. And I hope that. Seeing events like this can inspire others to to know that, you know, when you think of a firefighter in your head, that maybe the first image that comes to your mind could be more, there could be more possibilities for what that looks like.
1: Amy Cardinal Christensen is Banff National Park's Indigenous Fire Specialist.
3: Yeah, so I think what we're trying to do is really create a culturally safe space for Indigenous participants. So we have elders on site that they can go and talk to. I'm here as well um, as the Indigenous Fire Specialist. So, we can really share with each other um, about, you know, our cultural practices that we have and how they sometimes differ from what agencies do in terms of prescribed fire to be able to give each other that support.
1: Now, our next guest says as wildfire season gets longer and more intense, we need all hands on deck.
8: Uh, Hi, my name is Jane Park and I'm the fire and vegetation specialist for
1: the field Gent for Parks Canada. Now, Park runs Bant's fire response team, and she's an expert on the science of wildfires and forests. Her work has taken her across Canada and around the world, including Australia and Bolivia. And she took a break from the workshop to find a quiet place to chat with us. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Um, so you're about to run a prescribed burn demonstration today. What happens during a prescribed burn?
8: Yeah, so a lot of uh, pre-planning goes into the work that we do. Um, A lot of these prescribed fires, you know, have been a year or two or sometimes uh, many, many years in the making. A lot of plans are in place and uh, we get all the resources we need in terms of the people and the equipment. Um, we're constantly watching the weather on a daily basis to make sure that we have the right conditions. And so we gather all of our uh, personnel and we talk about safety considerations, um, how we're going to ignite the prescribed fire, whether that's um, by crews on the ground or using helicopters. We make sure that we have you know, water in place and other crews to help us. Um, And then we go ahead and we start uh, ignition.
1: So some people might be alarmed to hear that you're actually purposely setting a fire. What's the point of doing it?
8: Yeah, so many of our ecosystems in Canada and around the world are fire adapted. Uh, The wildlife and the vegetation is adapted to periodic fire. Um, It depends on where you are, of course, how frequent that fire is, how hot it burns. Most of our ecosystems in the mountains are adapted to fire And um, it's been excluded from the ecosystem for a really long time. And so fire managers or land managers of the past were a bit misled in, in thinking that all fire was bad. Um, there's a long history for millennia of indigenous people in many areas around the world who used fire to rejuvenate the vegetation, to create habitat for wildlife, um, to encourage the growth of medicinal plants and um, for ceremonial cultural purposes. And a lot of those practices were stopped you know, over 100 years ago. And since then, we've become really good at putting out fires But we now know through a lot of science and oral history from Indigenous nations that fire is an integral part of our ecosystem. And so in Parks Canada and many other agencies and in some Indigenous nations, we're working to restore fire back to the landscape. um, And to create a landscape that is more adapted to fire and can be more resilient to fire, especially in light of climate
1: change. Now, as I mentioned, that this is part of this workshop that you're doing, and this is one exercise. What are you trying to teach participants through this?
8: Yeah. So, this uh, particular training group um, is made up of uh, women and people from all different backgrounds, different genders, um, ethnicities. We have some indigenous firefighters here, and we're trying to improve their experiences and training with operational fire roles, the fire kind of industry is uh, very male-dominated and uh, we're trying to change the kind of diversity of the community and provide people with the opportunity to gain some of those skills in a really safe environment.
1: Okay. I want to come back to the workshop in a second, but first I just want to ask you about this because I'm really curious. You've been at this for a while. Can you paint us a picture of what it's like to be on a team responding to wildfires?
8: Yeah, so as part of my job, I am one of uh, five incident, national incident commanders on our national incident management teams for Parks Canada. And um, what that is, is it's a group of fire professionals um, that are on call throughout the fire season, kind of awaiting wildfire incident. You know, we're all highly trained in various different aspects of fire management. And we all work really hard together to be really efficient and safe at responding Two wildfires. And, uh, you know, in Parks Canada in particular, we're a fairly small fire agency, and uh, we all get to know each other really well. We spend uh, upwards of two weeks at a time, sometimes multiple shifts throughout a season together um, in really stressful situations, which really bonds you to your co-workers. In a particular way, you become sort of a bit of a fire family. And so those stressful situations kind of Create really close relationships with the people that you work with.
1: Yeah, I bet. I mean, I've covered uh, wildfire in the past, and and I have seen those guys, mostly guys, come down from from the front line, sweaty, tired, just with sort of bar- dark uh, marks on their face. It just looks like such tough work. What would draw you to this kind of work?
8: Uh, you know, as a kid, I was always kind of working outside, or li- or not working outside as a kid, but playing outside as a kid. Um, I just loved being outside. I loved plants and trees and learning all about um, the outdoors and especially the the forests. You know, my education uh, was in environmental science and forest ecology, and then I, you know, I started in the park warden service for Parks Canada as a park warden and. I really love the aspect of responding to emergencies, but I got introduced to prescribed fire very early in my career. Um, so I very much kind of grew up, I suppose, um, on the ecological use of fire and not on the suppression side of things. And And I just loved it. I loved that we could see how, um, you know, a a disturbance or a process like fire impacts the ecosystem. And I I love being able to see, you know, wildlife go into areas that we've burned and and thrive there. And so I just kind of love the excitement of it. But also I like working with great teams of of coworkers Mm -hmm. that are just... Amazing to spend time with in
1: the summer. I would think, though, that that at the point when you're actually fighting a fire—not not the prescribed burn, but but doing the other aspect of your job—there's got to be some kind of adrenaline rush.
8: Yeah, a hundred percent. There's <laughs> a definitely a lot of adrenaline that that keeps you going for those long days. You know, we're we're often on the fire uh, for fourteen plus hours a day for a couple weeks at a time, often camping or not sleeping in the best of places. And so the adrenaline is kind of what keeps you going for sure.
1: Oh, yeah, I bet. All right, let's come back to the workshop now. It's 12 days long. You're helping to lead it to, as I said, empower women and people of color and other underrepresented groups in firefighting. And you've told us some of this already, but why is it important to you personally to be a part of this?
8: I think, you know, I've been in doing this uh, for over 20 years now. 21 years this year when i started uh, i had some great mentors i had a lot of guys um, men that i looked up to that supported me that mentored me but i didn't have a lot of women you know when i started there was really one woman in fire in parks canada at that time um, and she's actually here which is great tanya letcher who now works for the alberta wildfire service but i didn't have that and I think for a long time, I didn't think about what that meant until I got to a bit more of a leadership role. And I started to hear from women who were starting out their careers and who were saying, you know, they'd never seen a woman in some of the types of leadership roles I've been in, like as an ops section chief or a planning section chief or an incident commander. And and that because they saw me and saw themselves represented, um, they thought that it was then possible. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was was pretty amazing, especially when you kind of, you know, ignorantly kind of go through it and don't really realize how important that is to some people. You know, Um, I'm not saying it wasn't important to me, but I didn't know what I was missing because I never had it. So it wasn't something I could really dream about. So I think seeing that, seeing a lot of women, you know, I am a Korean Canadian And my parents were immigrants to Canada and seeing other people of color and other underrepresented groups kind of be marginalized or or just severely underrepresented in the community. You know, I I just think it's really important because, you know, even though I am an incident commander, it is important to me that I see myself represented in the people that I'm leading. And so that's part of what we're trying to do here is just, you know, change a bit of the, the landscape of people that we're working with.
1: So how is it now then on on the teams that you lead? How many women, how much diversity on the teams you you have now?
8: It's uh, come a bit of a way, but we have a long way to go. You know, the kind of anecdotal stats are still only about 10% um, women on most fires. Uh, We do in Parks Canada have a large contingent of women, especially on some of our incident management teams. Um, In operations, it's still quite low. Other forms of diversity uh, in terms of people of color, other underrepresented groups, it is it is way lower than 10%. So uh, we have a ways to go, but these types of training opportunities, other initiatives that a lot of the different agencies have are, are likely making a difference, we hope.
1: Is it ever as the fact that you're a woman in this kind of work, has it ever held you back? Have you ever had challenges that, that maybe a man wouldn't have had doing this kind of thing?
8: I think for sure, there have been times that have been hard. Um, You know, I still sometimes show up at meetings and they assume that I'm not the incident commander. And they refer to my colleagues who are my subordinates, thinking that they're the leader. And, you know, thankfully, I work with some really great men who are also allies that direct them back to me. Um, Some people redirect and apologize, other people continue to ignore me. I think that's still something that happens. I, I have you know, as a, a woman of color, I, I've definitely experienced you know racism and discrimination. Not in the the far uh, past history; uh, it's been fairly recent, um, and so things like that still do happen, which does you know add a a different complexity to doing the job and being stressed out about the job, but also some of those other things. and And hopefully, this kind of thing is is raising more awareness and empathy amongst other people to understand that. You know, some experience of some of the members of the community
1: are, are a bit different. Maybe a little more challenging. Well, you sound so stoic about this. I would be infuriated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
8: yeah. It's uh, it's definitely tough, and uh, yeah, you kind of end up, you know, have to, having to have a brave face in the midst of you know all the chaos you're trying to manage. In addition to that, um, but it does wear on you over time for sure. There are times when it just seems you know, extremely unfair, and you get down on yourself. And even now, as an incident commander, I have those days where it's just like, really, is this all worth it? But, you know, when I see things like what's happening today in Banff, and I see smiles, or I talk to to women who are just starting their careers, and they just, you know, have such hope for what they want to accomplish, I think it's very much worth it.
1: And they see other women there, and that must give them uh, something of a boost when they're doing this.
8: Totally. You know, we have... Uh, 52 participants and and kind of teaching cadre here and it's not all women that we have a lot of uh, men participating as well and I think it it is really empowering for them to see strong women and and other people of other underrepresented groups leading fires that that's very uncommon um, in Canada and in North America really and so I think that um it gives a lot of hope to to what it could look like in the future. And, what, and
1: where are people attending from?
8: All over the place. So we have uh, members from all over Canada, from coast to coast, top to the bottom. Um, we also have a lot of folks from the United States, California and Virginia and some other places in the States, as well as we have a Bolivian participant, as well as a woman from Ecuador that uh, should be arriving tomorrow. She had a little travel delay, but... Uh, I think she's hopping on a plane tomorrow, and we'll be here tomorrow. So, so yeah, we've got folks from all over the place.
1: Yeah, you 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 traveled to Bolivia recently, and you shared your knowledge with the wildland firefighters there. But but I wonder, in your travels around the world, what practices have been inspiring you to broaden your own approach to responding to and prescribing fires?
8: I think it's uh, it's maybe not so much what's different, but I think what's been really inspiring and interesting is how different ecosystems can be so similar. So, um, you know, going to Bolivia, going to Australia, you know, the, the vegetation that grows in those places is nothing like what we have in Canada, obviously. Both of those places are in the southern hemisphere. So the wind and the, everything is kind of upside down. But at the same time, the challenges are very similar. Um, everybody is facing increased challenges with wildfire due to climate change. Um, we all are seeing things that uh, you know aren't necessarily in anyone's oral history, and we're all trying to make it work. And so, I think uh, while the fire may behave differently and the vegetation is different, it is really neat to go down to these places and and realize we're all kind of dealing with the same challenges and trying to come up with solutions together. You know, you mentioned in your opening, uh, "all hands on deck," and that's kind of my been my new motto lately. Is is that we do need all hands on deck, which means, you know, all the diverse groups of people. We need, you know, Indigenous nations who are doing cultural fire. We need agencies to stop just putting fire out because it's only going to get harder with climate change.
1: There's one of the things about the the workshops that that I wanted to ask you about, um, and it ties into some of the other things you've been discussing. It, It does include prescribed burns, of course, and leading teams, but also mental health. Why is it important to have mental health on the agenda? mental
8: health is just really important. You know, with climate change, our jobs have become really difficult. And, you know, in the past, we might get deployed to a large wildfire once a season. We might do one or two prescribed fires on top of that. But more and more these wildfires we're going to, they're becoming more challenging. We're being deployed multiple times a season because of the fire suppression and the buildup of vegetation around communities. And and the development of communities in the forest and in the, the interface, the wildfires we're going to are, are much di- much more difficult than they used to be in the past. And so it's extremely stressful. And, you know, we're away from our families and our support networks for, for weeks, sometimes months at a time. And so if we want a resilient workforce that can, you know, weather these events, Um, We really need to be able to focus on mental health and wildland firefighters are at a higher risk of, of suicide and mental health issues than the regular public. And I've experienced things where, you know, we, I've come back really burnt out and, and we have a limited number of of folks in this industry. And if we burn them all out, uh, we're going to be in big trouble. So I think it's really important that um, agencies are taking mental health a lot more seriously, we're starting to see much more all hazard response in our emergency management. You know, last year, my deployments were actually not related to wildfire. It was hurricanes and, and other things. And so it's just becoming a year round job to manage a lot of these changes.
1: Yeah. And, and increasingly challenging Jane Park. It's been really great talking to you. I, I, I wish nothing but a safe, next few months for you as you deal with uh, all that's to come with the wildfire and beyond um, safe and uh, effective in the fights out there. So Jane, thank you very much. Thank you. A follow-up note, after we recorded this conversation with Jane, the prescribed burn outside the town of Banff spread further than planned. Parks Canada says it was because of a quote, unexpected shift in wind direction and speed.
3: Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The
2: podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental
1: conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we featured a special episode focused entirely on how to move away from fossil fuels without leaving workers in the lurch, with stories about Germany's shift away from coal, Denmark's oil and gas ban, and investments in wind energy, and more. After that, we heard from you, and producer Molly Siegel is here to share some of the feedback. Hi, Molly. Hi, Laura. So what do you have for us? I want to start
2: us out with a listener named Terry O'Connor. He's based in Pemberton, B.C., and he works in oil and gas construction. He's a heavy equipment operator, among other things
9: and I'm not just a I'm not just a heavy equipment operator like I'm also a musician and a skier and a dad and you know lots of lots of things that make me up right so
2: he says he's now 44 years old but that he started working in oil and gas when he was 31 for a while he did work in Fort McMurray but now he doesn't like it there so he hasn't worked there in a number of years he says Terry was at work in Northwestern B.C. on a break when I reached him by phone after I saw the email he sent us.
9: I listen to you guys on podcast while I'm uh, at work because I've got a lot of sort of idle time when we're say we're doing a weld or something here on on the job. So I listen to various shows. You know, <laughs> some some of these pipeliners don't don't really support the CBC too much, but uh, I think you guys are all right.
1: Yeah, we are all right. Thank you, Terry. I'm I'm really glad that, that you reached out to us after hearing the episode.
2: Yeah, I am too. He wanted to share some of his own experiences in the industry and what keeps him working mostly in oil and gas.
9: I'm on the CGL pipeline here that's uh, going to connect to the LNG plant in Kitamas. We're getting 80% of the project done or something. It's getting, getting closer and closer to the finish line. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel here. You know, and uh, the money—the money's really good, because you know, it's uh, after taxes, it's like three thousand dollars a week take-home, right? So it's like really tough to make that in town, or with any other sort of green-type job. You know, like everybody keeps talking about these so-called green jobs that are coming down, coming down the pipe here. And where are they? What are they? You know, like what, are they installing solar panels on people's roofs? Or I'm not really sure how lucrative that's going to be unless you're an electrical contractor right so for a guy like me I'm running equipment on a on a pipeline construction project and the hourly rate is better you get 12 hour days with your overtime it's hard to really say what a transition would look like for a guy like me because I can't afford to just keep on keeping on without making a considerable amount of money to support my uh my family and my household and my vehicles and all that of life expenses that add up, right?
1: Well, that's interesting because we heard something similar from Chris, who's a worker on the other coast of Canada, that, that the money in oil and gas is, is hard to beat. So it sounds like there really isn't anything out there that were, would replace that level of cash for him right now.
2: Yeah, I was curious about that too what fundamentally do you think needs to be addressed here in Canada before you realistically would consider like working predominantly in, mm-hmm. in
9: another field using your skills? Well, I think just your, um, your buying power, like wages haven't kept up to inflation since like say the 90s or even the late 80s, you know, and every year things get more expensive. Even even before we have this big inflation where it was 2%, wages were only going up half a percent. And that was going on for decades.
1: Yeah, and recent inflation has really made it even more challenging for so many people.
2: Oh, yeah. Now, Terry talked a lot about his buying power with a -a 40-hour-a-week job in town. It just wouldn't give him the same life that he and his family have right now. Terry did talk about how he also wished the government would spend more money on things like hydroelectric power and rooftop solar here in B.C., He's also had his own frustration with red tape trying to get solar panels himself. And before we wrapped up, he did have some other kind words for us, Laura. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we uh, end the the call?
9: Not really. I just I, I i like I like the show and I take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But, uh, you know, you guys have some good good stuff in there.
1: Oh, thanks, Terry. <laughs> I hope if anyone else is listening to us whose work is tied to the fossil fuel industry. I hope you reach out to share your thoughts as well. Um, We'd also like to hear from people who are living in communities that rely on oil and gas jobs to fuel the local economy because it's clear from what we heard last week, it's not just workers like Terry who could be affected by change in the sector. It's also his neighbours who work in teaching or at the grocery store or the local restaurant.
2: Yeah, exactly. Now, Laura, I do have another email I'd like to share Maggie Laidlaw in Guelph, Ontario, wrote in to say, quote, I listened with interest to your program highlighting Denmark's switch to wind power. I couldn't help contrasting that with the current situation in Ontario where I live. When Doug Ford was first elected in 2018, one of his first acts was to cancel a partially built turbine project in Prince Edward County, and it ultimately cost $231 million to cancel that and other renewable energy projects. Maggie continues to write, quote, One cannot help but wonder where Ontario would be if we had followed Denmark's example.
1: Well, there are a lot of other stories about wind energy here in Canada, and we are going to try to get to at least some of them in future, future editions of What on Earth.
2: Yes, absolutely. I have one more email to share with you, this one from Aurora Hamilton in Calgary, who writes, quote, Chris from Newfoundland hit the nail on the head when he said the core problem is that the economy is based on the practices of continual growth, which are unsustainable and are destroying the environment. Now, Aurora also mentioned wanting to hear from people in other communities in Canada that are or have been tied to the fossil fuel sector, like Hannah and Hardesty in Alberta, as well as Estevan, Saskatchewan. And I agree. We want to hear from you. So please do reach out.
1: All right. You heard the call. Hannah Hardesty Estevan, right into to us, please. Earth at cbc.ca. Thanks a lot, Molly. Okay. Thank you, Laura. here's a quick look at some other climate stories in the news. New York has become the first state in the U.S. to ban the use of natural gas and other fossil fuels in most new buildings. There are dozens of cities that have already taken the step of halting gas hookups in new buildings, but this statewide law is likely to be challenged in court. There are some exemptions for hospitals, restaurants, manufacturers, and car washes. The twin children of global weather are on track to trade places this year, signaling hotter temperatures ahead. La Niña, a weather system that generally results in cooler temperatures, has ended. And the World Meteorological Organization is warning it's increasingly likely that El Niño will develop later this year, potentially leading to increased heat, drought and rainfall. The next United Nations Climate Conference will take an in-depth look at health for the first time. COP28 will happen in Dubai this coming November. It will dedicate a full day to looking at the impacts of climate change on human health and on global healthcare systems. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. So we've been featuring your climate champions on the show lately, and it's not too late to send your champions to us. Shoot us an email at earth at cbc.ca. What on Earth producer, Rachel Sanders, though, is with me now to talk about another nomination. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Laura. So Victoria Lane emailed
5: us with a nomination. Uh, She'd heard a recent episode that had an interview with an Australian hairdresser who talks to her clients about climate. Do you remember Paloma Rose Garcia? Oh, yeah. I mean, who
1: could forget Paloma? Uh, She actually made me wonder, and I asked the question on the air, whether there were any other Canadian hairdressers doing the same thing.
5: Well, we found one, Laura. Uh, Victoria writes, we already have at least one Canadian hairdresser doing just that and more right here in my town of summerland bc so we called up that hairdresser to find out more
10: my name is angela matchuck i am the owner of replenish refillery and zero waste store i'm also a hairstylist i've been a hairstylist for many years here in summerland
1: Uh, Summerland in the Okanagan in British Columbia, a place I used to go to every childhood summer because that's where my grandparents were. It's such a beautiful place and so many signs of climate change all over the Okanagan these days.
5: That's right. Yeah. And it means the subject is often top of mind for Angela's clients.
10: In our area, we've had a lot of fires in the Okanagan. We've had flooding. And unfortunately, it sounds like we're going to get both this year again. We've had a drought in the past as well. And I think it just naturally comes up because it affects all of us, right? The smoke that we're breathing in throughout the summer. And when that comes up, it's like, what are we doing that is contributing to to climate change? And how can we stop or change? What can we do to make a difference? And I love talking with people about it.
1: Okay, but I'm wondering how those people feel about talking about it. How does she strike up the conversation? So you heard her mention her refillery.
5: Uh, Angela said working as a hairdresser, she noticed a lot of waste in her industry. You know, there's plastic tubes for hair colouring, all kinds of other hair products. And so that's what inspired her to start up a refill shop just about a year ago. And her hair studio is right at the back of it. So clients walk through her store, past the rows of huge jugs of hair shampoos and laundry soaps and other sustainable products to get to her chair. And she says that really sets the stage for conversations about climate change.
10: They're sitting in my chair and they're stuck there for, you know, anywhere from a half an hour to a couple hours, (laughs) depending. And even the material that I have, rather than a bunch of fashion magazines, I've got something that's about invasive species. We've got organic housekeeping book. I've got uh, one on gardening. I've got one on reducing plastic so they're all out on display people will pick one up and we'll start chatting about it it just is very fluid and natural and organic it's a place that i think people can ask questions and feel safe because there's no judgment right and i can ask questions one of my clients just got some solar panels so that was great we could talk about that I don't have them in my chair to sell them on anything. I want to just have conversations.
5: So Angela says she learns a lot from her clients as well. You heard her talk about the the client who'd just gotten solar panels. She gets ideas from them about how to live more sustainably as well. In fact, she's now moved on to another project And that's worm composting. Uh, She says she'll sometimes go and actually grab her worm composting tub to show her clients the beautiful organic compost she's making for the garden that she built on the driveway behind the store. I'm super excited about it.
10: And I'm telling them. And now they're excited. It's just another, it's another cool thing that we can chat about. So see, you got me all excited about worms
1: now. So. Okay, worms. Yeah, that's a pretty strange combination, isn't it? The, the, the idea of worms inside a beauty salon.
5: <laughs> it's a little odd, but people are into it, Laura. She says so many of her clients are excited about worm composting now that she's started running worm composting workshops. And she says she sees all of this work she's doing making a difference. They get
10: hopeful and inspired because they leave here and they're excited. They're excited. Like they come in with their containers to refill and I offer to help refill. And a lot of people, no, I want to do it myself. They love that feeling because then they're making a difference, right? So they leave with this really good feeling that what they're doing is helping and they're telling other people
1: about it. Boy, she sounds great. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, too, to Victoria Lane for the nomination, and please keep them coming. We do want to hear about your community climate champions. Email us anytime. Again, that is earth at cbc.ca. And if you missed our Earth Day Climate Heroes episode, it's great. You can find it at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. OK, I've got some high drama for you now. Uh, you might be thinking Shakespeare or a melodramatic musical like Mama Mia. No, I am only calling it high drama because the stakes are so high. And one high school class in Vancouver is tying it all together by using drama to imagine a future where climate change has made a big impact.
11: Star date February 26th. 2173. This is Commander Sangster checking in of the climate rebellion. Due to the climate catastrophe that Earth citizens allowed to happen in the 21st century, we presently inhabit the solar system in self-contained space habitats.
1: You're listening to Brendan Sangster there. He's a drama teacher at Britannia Secondary School in Vancouver. He's reenacting Landing 2173, a solar punk drama. It's a class exercise he created with his students about the future of the earth if there's not enough done to halt climate change. But Commander Sangster isn't the only actor in this climate drama.
11: Tuning in, climate recruit, Officer Dabney. In order to understand our present, you need to also understand the past. We'll be using our technology which will allow you to transport yourself back into the past using a photograph from the 21st century. While you're there, I want you to explore ask questions of the people around you and make observations about what was happening on Earth in that time, before the evacuation to planets we are at now. Officer Dabney, are you there?
7: Greetings, Commander. This is Officer Dabney reporting in, sending this report from a very high-density city zone that appears to be sometime in the early 2000s.
1: The last voice you heard there is grade 12 student Troy Dabney. In the drama, Troy plays one of Commander Sangster's recruits, officers investigating how climate change has destroyed the ability to live on Earth. He hurtles through space and travels back in time to before the mass evacuation.
7: Judging by the structure of the land and how the forest is abruptly cut off, it seems as though a large portion of the forest sacrificed this area, which I can't imagine is an ecologically good thing to do. I can also assume that this practice of destroying forests for mechanization and the building of cities is a common one, which may be why the climate of this planet declined so fast in later years.
1: 30 students participated in this class exercise, and each student created their own script. For Troy, the climate drama isn't just about playing a role. What once seemed like abstract concepts have now become more real.
7: I feel like it's kind of just enforced the ideas I already had before, which is we kind of need to like do something or else we're probably actually going to end up like the fictional character I was playing. Right. Like these people trapped on a space station because they killed off their planet. It was very much like a wake up call. It's like this could be what happens right down the line if we don't do something now.
1: Troy says drama allowed him to learn about climate change in a different way.
7: It's always more of, like, a very, like, read this, the climate is dying, yada, 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 right? Like, the basic stuff. And it's always just, like, it's not that it's, like, boring, but it's, like, it doesn't really provoke a lot of thought. Because it's just the basic, like, read this, answer questions, memorize it, test, right? Like, there's no, like, out-of-the-box thinking, right? And I feel like with having the intersection between theater and climate and having to play a character that's, like, so different from, like, what my day-to-day life actually is. And almost an a character who's looking in on it from an outside perspective, it forces me to change my perspective and kind of think about it in a different way than before.
1: Learning from a different perspective is exactly what Brendan Sankster wants for his students. He believes storytelling can help people understand information about climate change and solutions. And if you're a regular listener to our show, this might sound kind of familiar. Brendan was inspired to create the climate drama after a class he took with Derek Gladwin. And we talked to Derek a few months ago. He and Naoko Ellis run climate storytelling classes and workshops at UBC. Now Brendan wants other teachers to take note. Blending climate change with other subjects has its advantages.
11: I think it's a great theme to take on no matter what your subject is. And it would be an exciting thing maybe for schools to consider each year is if all of us considered the lens of climate and applied our subjects to that. I would just offer to teachers to find whenever, what little time we have, but just to collaborate on on having those mergers. And especially between art and academics, because I think the emotional uh, teaching is going to be the greater the part that keeps it in our heart a lot longer, I think the facts really can be uh, understood really, really well through art.
1: As for Officer Troy Dabney from the year 2173, he's finished his report to Commander Sangster.
7: Although the decisions that these humans are making may seem bad from our future perspective, I'm sure that during their time, they did what they thought was right, which I guess is just human nature. The decisions we're making in our present could definitely be the wrong ones. Who knows? Who knows? As for now, that concludes my report. Officer Dabney signing out.
1: Well, now that Officer Dabney has signed off, it's time for us to sign off too. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers, Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producer Molly Siegel, and... You know, you mentioned in your opening, uh, all hands on deck. Yeah, we had a particular kind of week this week, so those words couldn't be truer this week. Thanks to Ethan Sawyer, Paula Dehacek. This week, Rohit Joseph and Rachel Sanders are our engineers. And Catherine Rolfson and Rachel Sanders are our senior producers because Rachel did double duty. I'm almost kind of triple duty this week. Big thanks to Rachel. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
9: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.